This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein, Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program, and I'm here on Zoom with my co-hosts and colleagues, Ann Greenhall and Mike Yuseem. Ann, how are you today? I'm great, Jeff, and happy to be here. All right. It is, it's nice to have everybody together. Mike, how are you, sir? I'm very, very good, Jeff, and I hope you are too. Uh, you know, I'm good as I can be, right? <laughs> and, and here we are. We're live uh, on the air. You know, but I, I spend a fair amount of time with you guys each day. You know, like it, there there were some weeks where it felt like, you know, this would be the reunion when we got together uh, here live on the radio. But instead, you know, I feel like it, it's it's just another conversation that I seem to be having in the basement of my home looking <laughs> at this computer monitor. Right. So we'll have to. Here's what I want you to do. We'll set an intention. I'll set an intention for you for the show um picture the radio studio oh love it right and just and the exuberance mm. and the personal connection uh that we were able to feel there and we'll we'll bring that spirit into today's conversation jeff Thanks. i think we're i think we're a true team yeah i've got the cans on my head <laughs> all right fantastic fantastic and for our listeners i want to remind you that new episodes of our show premiere every friday at 9 a.m eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. So we've got a really fun show today. Um, we're delighted to uh, welcome back one of our guests and, uh, and welcome our other guests. They are the co-authors of the CEO test, Master the Challenges That Make or Break All Leaders, um, and they are Adam Bryant and Kevin Scherer. Adam, how are you today? Everything's great. Thanks for the uh, invitation to be on your show. Oh, of course, of course. And Kevin, welcome to Leadership in Action. Um, Thanks, Jeff. We're delighted to have you here. So let me, if I can, I want to say a little bit more about your backgrounds, and then we want to dive uh, right into the new book, The CEO Test. Um, Adam, you are the Managing Director American Company, which is a leadership development and senior executive mentoring firm. Um, prior to this role and the way we all got to know you was in your role as a journalist um, for 30 years, including at the New York Times, where you created and authored the widely read corner office column. Um, and if I'm right, you've, I think you're like well over 500 CEOs interviewed at this point. Past 600. Yep. All right. All right. So, um, my goodness, just what just what you've absorbed um, from the ether uh, would be worth the hour to talk about. We're going to be delighted to focus it here on on this new book of yours. Great, it's been a great adventure. Um, Kevin, you are the former president and CEO and chairman of Amgen, which is the world's largest biotech company. Um, you led its expansion over two decades from a billion dollars to nearly $16 billion in annual revenue, um, and also taught for a number of years uh, at the Harvard Business School, where, if I'm correct, you co-developed a, a course with the dean there. Yes, the life and role of the CEO. Mm -hmm. All right. 
Well, we, we can we can see how you you both bring your perspectives and uh, and certainly your experiences to bear on the new book. And and when we think about the CEO test, um, Kevin, maybe if I start with you, where did the idea emanate um, for the book? Probably a long gestation. Um, I was an early interviewee. Uh, that's where I met Adam in the corner office. And, and we talked about the CEO job then. And it's always been something of, of some interest to me. And at school, I was able to, to teach leadership and management for, for seven years and thought about it. And Adam and I reconnected through a mutual friend about three years ago. And I kind of had the cheek to say, hey, I never wrote a book, but I don't think anybody ever wrote a book about how do you actually do the job. And Adam was was game to, to see if that could work. And away we went. And we worked for, uh, gosh, two years. It was quite quite uh, an intensive effort. And that that that's kind of how it happened, how it came about. All right. And, you know, Adam, one of the things I, I appreciated when I was taking a look at the book is, is you and Kevin are pretty assertive. You say, look, th this isn't a, a philosophical treatise. We're not going to try to define the word leadership, which we all know that if, you know, you take five people interested in leadership and ask them for their definition, you'll get eight definitions, right? I mean, that, that's what we know about leadership. Um, it's also not a particular kind of leadership. So what is it about this book um, that you felt was, um, you know, so practical and so valuable for CEOs? I think it starts with the, the pretty tight aperture we put on the topic and really captured in the subtitle of the book, which is Master the Challenges That Make or Break All Leaders. Um, and part of the process of framing and shaping the book early on, Kevin and I, you know, uh, you know, probably three whiteboards worth of just broad discussions about like what is leadership, what are the key tests, and we just kept winnowing and winnowing to to really say like okay these are the seven reasons why people um, succeed or fail in the, in their roles and it's not that everybody has to score a perfect ten um, but everybody's there's kind of a threshold level of competence and success if you hope to succeed in these roles so once we identified those seven things then we add the initial beat of say okay we're not just going to describe them folks we're going to show you how to do them um, and you know I think part of the reason why the partnership is so strong is that we bring kind of a metaphorical tea to the project, the breadth of my 600 plus interviews and all the stories and insights I've heard from CEOs and the incredible depth of Kevin's experience. Um, so between those two, I mean, you know, I've always felt that the, the key currencies of leadership are stories, insights, and, and tips, tools, frameworks, approaches, um, you know, kind of takeaways, like this is how to actually do it. And, and that's what the book is. And uh, again, it's called the CEO test. I mean, to be clear, it's not just for CEOs, but you know, part of our insight was at some level, you know, all leaders jobs are the same as you move higher up the intensity, complexity, consequences increase, but let's focus on what's the same for all leaders. And then what can we learn from CEOs about how to do that well? And why don't we bring you into the conversation? Well, thank you, Jeff, and thank you both for joining us on the show. Kevin, I'm going to go back to you for a moment, and I'm going to ask a very basic, fundamental, and perennial question, one that I think is embedded in your book, but I'm going to give it a shot. From your perspective as a longtime practitioner, is leadership something you can learn, or is it largely innate? 
Um, I, I know that's, that's a perennial question. I know it. <laughs> uh, certainly some people bring, because of their personal characteristics, maybe growing up here, some set of characteristics that gives them a bit of a, of a leg up. But I'm a profound believer. I see it in practice. I saw it in myself. You, you can grow. In fact, you have to grow. And what I tell, I, I'm now in the business of coaching senior CEOs of, of major, major organizations. And my, my opening gambit is if you are a, 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 an executive vice president of a corporation, moving from that job to CEO is like going from governor of a state to the president of the United States. You must grow as a leader. And I'm a, I'm a giant believer in the potential of human beings to grow. They have to want to. But the potential is there. And the people who think because of charisma, they're born leaders and they've got it made. Uh, we, we got a lot of those people floating around. You can see what happens to them. <laughs> so great. Thank you, Kevin. If I may, Jeff, just one for Adam. Adam, just curious, you've spent a lifetime writing about leadership. What drew you to that topic? I've been interested in leadership since I was a kid. I mean, I played a lot of sports and I found myself when I was watching football games, I was studying the different styles of the coaches and I was just always struck by, you know, the different results they would get. Um, and then I, you know, started my journalism career covering industry. Um, I spent four years uh, writing about the airline industry, which, you know, my analogy, I think it's, it's sort of like the NFL of business insofar as everybody kind of has the same equipment, right? Um, you know, there isn't a lot of difference between the airlines, but the big difference comes from like leadership and service and culture. And it was a pretty turbulent time in the mid nineties, um, literally and metaphorically for the airline industry. You know, and I saw somebody like Gordon Bethune come in um, to Continental Airlines, which at that point was the standard punchline on late night talk show hosts, right? Talk show by talk show hosts. Um, and he turned it around and and it was just, it was such an amazing um, story. And, and, uh, and so it built on that and ultimately um, led me to start corner office was, you know, I'd been a business reporter, interviewed a lot of CEOs. And at some point it dawned on me that, you know, inter CEOs are always interviewed pretty much only as strategists, right? Like, you know, how's the next quarter look? What about the industry dynamics? What about your competitors? And that led me to launch Corner Ops based on a very simple what if, which is what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them about their companies and just asked them about leadership lessons they've learned over the course of their lives and how they think about building teams and culture and how they hire all these timeless and universal insights. Um, and uh, as I said, it's just been a great adventure. I, I you know, just the amount I've learned um, from all the leaders, from all walks of life. I, I really tried to, from the very start, embrace diversity in every sense of the word. Uh, and, uh, and you know, what motivates me is to sort of share those insights because I, sadly, I think there are too many bad bosses in the world. So if we can get every boss and leader to raise their game, I think that has a really outsized impact on people's lives. Great, thank you, Adam. Jeff. Well, I'll remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall and Mike Yuseem. And our guests today are Adam Bryant and Kevin Scherer, who are authors of a new book called The CEO Test. Mike, over to you. Well, uh, Kevin and Adam, great to have you on the show and uh, doubly great to be talking about your new book, 
And just to reference what is in it, and then I'm going to apply it, you offer up seven tests for the CEO, hence the title, the CEO test. And in my view, so good are those tests that I spent most of the day testing myself. And I'm not certain I passed all the tests for sure. Um, and they're probably more than pass-fail tests. That is, uh, there's probably a gradient to it as well. I'm going to start, though, uh, maybe, Kevin, with you on the first test, which I found very intriguing. And that is, can you develop a simple plan for your strategy? And then you add, simplifying complexity is a leader's superpower. It's your first test. Why is that so important? And why do so many people fall short on what should seem obvious? And that is, got to tell people where we're going together. Otherwise, it's pretty hard to get them on board. Kevin, over to you. Thanks, Mike. Um, first of all, simplifying complexity is not simple. It, it kind of goes back to Mark Twain. When, you know, he's got a million famous Mark Twain sayings. One was, you know, if I had more time, I'd have written you a shorter letter. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's in that zip code. And the reason that simplifying complexity is important is, is that's the way you can communicate the way forward to the largest number of people, and they can actually understand it. The other thing about simplifying complexity is it, you introduce clarity. There's really not much room for the leader to hide. Here's where we're going. Here's why. Here's what we're going to do to get there. And here's how we're going to measure progress along the way. What I noticed in my life is a whole cadre of folk who are, in an in a academic sense, maybe intelligent, book smart. They're all about making complexity more complex to show how smart they are. And what I would do when folk would come into the office, I'd be polite, I'd, I'd be lighthearted, but I'd say, hey, that 20 page PowerPoint deck you have there, let's not go over to that. Why don't you just tell me the one line message of this deck and what action we should take consequently and why? That would stump a lot of people. And so this idea of simplifying complexity gets people aligned, makes the leader think to the absolute essence of what they're trying to do and, and, and really uh, creates clarity about what we're trying to do and why. Kevin, very helpful. Before I kick over to Adam, let me just do a quick follow-up on that. Part of the formula there, and it's in your book in passing, is you've got to become like a presidential candidate, good at repeating your message repeatedly. And thinking about your own time in, in the, um, the hot seat uh, in the corner office, um, how did you gird yourself to talk with a group at three o'clock about the strategy and then, in a sense, repeat yourself at five o'clock with another team? So what, what's the art of simplicity frequently repeated? Yeah, I think, first of all, you really have to believe it. It, it, it can't be yeah. some intellectual exercise. It's got to be something to your core you believe and you like to share it with people. You, you like to test, is it still believed by others? You know that's centrally important to the job. Sort of if, if we were having another discussion, I could say maybe there are seven things the CEO's got to get right. And if they don't, the other 5,500 don't matter. And having the right plan, well communicated, is one of those seven things. And, and you know it. And so if you, if you don't want to do that, you may not be the right person for the job. Kevin, thank you on that. Adam, I'm going to ask a question about the framing of your book. I think I've got this right. Seven tests, 
and to be an A student or an A CEO, you've got to pass them all. Is that correct? Yes, but you don't have to get 10 out of 10 on each of them. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, it's, I think with any, as with any leader that's going to be lumpy, some people are better at some things than others. But, you know, if, I think it is a, a constructive step back question to simply ask, like, why do people like what are the consistent reasons why people succeed or fail in these roles? Um, and so we tried to establish kind of the break points um, and the strategy point that you were just talking about with Kevin. I mean, part of my learning curve since leaving The Times in 2017, joining my consulting firm, we go into a lot of great big enterprise clients. And part of what I've come to understand is that the word, just the simple word strategy is a Rorschach test. It means different things to different people. Um, you know, when we do work with leadership teams, we'll, you know, ask the 12 people on a leadership team, you know, before we talk about X, Y, and Z, can you just, in your own words, tell us what the strategy is? With some teams, you hear the same thing from every, uh, every person. And sometimes you hear 12 different answers. Um, but boy, there are some companies where the CEO gets it, they repeat it. You know, I always say like a key test of whether you've got the simple plan and whether you're repeating it is that if your employees are kind of teasing you, like they know what you're going to say before you say it and they sort of joke and roll their eyes and like, that's called a victory, folks. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you hear it in the, it's like, oh yeah, you know, Joe or Jane, they're always saying these three things or it's like, yeah, but you remember them. It's great. I can see my two colleagues nodding in approval of that one <laughs> or agreement. So, Jeff, back to you. Thanks, Mike. Um, you know, as, as I was looking at, at the book, one of the tests really jumped out at me. Um, and, you know, it, it what it did was it, it made me remember to early in my career when I was working um, in an executive education program here at Wharton, um, we had a whole day that was going to be focused on communications. You know, and we had a group of about 30 folks, including a, a number of leaders who were in charge of uh, in charge of family businesses. You know, and and I remember one of the gentlemen coming up to me the day before communication, and he said, "You know, I just I can't wait. I have been so focused on building my communication skills. I want to know how to get my message out." Um, and so we went into the, the session the next day and uh, the faculty member, Nancy Rothbard, spent the first two hours really trying to, to build a framework for what someone says and then the kinds of filters um, that, that that message often goes through before it's received by someone else. And she used that as a launch pad into active listening. And, I, and I'm watching the gentleman that had approached me the, the day before and he's looking more and more puzzled, right? And so we, we, we got to a break in the program and I went up and I said, so is this what you're expecting? And he said, he said, no, this wasn't what I was expecting at all. It's wonderful, but this is the first time I've ever thought that communication includes listening, right? And it was like, we had just expanded the, the, the world in the way that he's thinking about it. So I, I wanna ask you about the, the listening test. Right. And and, you know, Kevin, you brought some um, you brought some personal uh, experience in terms of what listening looks like and how to build. And I appreciated this. You also had it in a recent Harvard Business Review article, how to build a listening ecosystem. Um, could you talk a little bit about the role of listening for the CEO and then 
both the behaviors and the structures that that support a good listening practice? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It's it's a it's a complex question. It's an important question. Let, let me try to make it as kind of clear as I can. The, the first thing is, is headset of the CEO. You have to realize that the information that flows to you by the normal course of events is biased and incomplete and, and may even be wrong because nobody wants to tell the boss bad news and every information system is biased to positivity. People who, people who run corporations tend to be uh, enthusiastic, confident, optimistic folks. So that's the first mindset. Second mindset point is you, through your behavior, influence the communication field way more than you think. What kind of environment do you create? Are you like Jeff M. Elton, a success theater creator? Right away, if you're a success theater creator, you're never going to hear the truth. And so what's your behavior and your behavior's effect on the likelihood of people telling you the truth? Number three, what are you trying to do when you're listening? Are you trying to prepare your debate point? Are you thinking about what you're going to do on the weekend? Are you trying to complete their sentences? What is it? It needs to be, I'm just listening for comprehension. That's all. And I really want to make the person who's talking to me comfortable. I could keep going on and on like that. But this is one of those things where the game is won or lost before the whistle blows kind of stories. The second thing is you have to realize that the ecosystem is not just people inside your company. It's not just things that directly affect your company now. What decision did the regulator make for your competitor in your industry last week that's going to affect you? I could go on and on, but the idea is you've got to know there are lots and lots of people who are communicating to you in direct and indirect ways. And so you, I'm, I'm not trying to talk about paranoia. What I'm mm -hmm. fundamentally trying to talk about is curiosity. And if, you're, if you've got the right headset and the right system, you'll eventually you know, get close to knowing what the truth is. And finally, what I would tell everybody is the truth is a mosaic. We never have all the tiles. We're always trying to guess the picture. So if you've got that sort of mindset, you're going to want to get as many tiles as you can before you have to guess and act on what the picture is. I, I really appreciate that metaphor, Kevin. And, and I, I appreciate the, the highlighting of the ways in which you're behaving, the ways in which you're reacting, influencing the kinds of messages that, that people are willing to share with you. Um, in, in your experience, what structures does it help to put in place? Like how intentional were you as a CEO or are you with the CEOs that, that you're coaching? I'm, really I'm, enormous, yeah, I'm, I'm enormously intentional. For example, I would ride just me and the sales rep one day a quarter and go call on doctors. You're amazed how much you can learn. I knew the factory managers. I'd go visit them. I paid real attention to what's going on in the regulatory world in, in, in my industry. I would talk one-on-one -on -one with people two levels below me. For example, the person who, who managed our relationship with the FDA. 
I would talk with the person who was in charge of Salesforce compliance. I wasn't trying to undercut my staff. They knew I was doing this, but I wanted to hear firsthand. I wanted firsthand information and not just, you know, five levels review, review, removed in summary documents. I was enormously intentional. Right. That's really helpful, Kevin. I appreciate it. And Adam, I want to bring you into the conversation. 30 years as a journalist, what have you learned about listening? Um, and, and how have you seen listening inform great leadership? Sure. And the way I think about le listening in the context of leadership, it starts with how do you listen in a one-on-one -on -one setting? Um, and then, you know, you, you go from that to the kind of ecosystem that an infrastructure, true infrastructure that Kevin put into place at Amgen, including there's a great detail he shared with me about on the annual survey with employees, he would ask all the employees, what do you think of the job that Kevin is doing and give an open field to get comments. So to me, it's important <laughs> to understand sort of listening from the one on one. You know, because there is this phrase active listening to me, it seems a bit redundant, like shouldn't like, what's the opposite of that passive listening. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, to start with the one on one, I mean, you know, in all my years as a journalist, I've, I've done a lot of interviews, I've thought long and hard about the art of listening, because part of what I try and do is draw people out. Um, and, and I think being a good listener starts with, first of all, kind of clearing your mind. I don't meditate, but it's probably the closest I get to meditation in the sense that when I'm interviewing somebody, I really, you know, if if there's a, some, if I'm starting to think about the meeting I have to go to next, it's like, it's a kind of a butterfly effect in the interview, like something <laughs> subtle changes. And I always think of eye contact as kind of the 5G of communication and people can tell um, when you're listening to them or not, when you're when you're truly present, because a lot of conversations are just serial monologues, right? Like you're talking, the other person looks like they're listening, but they're just waiting for you to stop talking so they can tell you what they think. Um, and I think another key um, key skill when you're listening is to really approach the conversation without any agenda or judgments. Um, and I think that's conveyed in subtle ways. You know, your eyes show that, your body language shows that. If you're truly listening for comprehension, um, I think people pick up on that and are much more willing to share with you because implicit in that is a little bit of trust. Um, I honestly think that like listening is such an underrated skill uh, in leadership and people who do it well, it's a true superpower. So I think it starts with that as kind of the cornerstone. Then once you recognize the importance of this kind of bubble effect that, that you can be in as a leader and all the intentional steps that Kevin alluded to that you have to take and, and large and small, you know, I, I love the detail that one CEO shared with us um, where he has a rule with the staff. He goes, if you have bad news, I want you to text me. If you have good news, wait till I see you in person. And just something small like that, right? Like, no, no, because the sooner we get the bad news out, the sooner we can fix it. Um, and so just kind of all those signals that CEOs give off explicit and implicit. I mean, we talked to Nell Minow, you guys know her. Um, she ran Lens, the activist shareholder fund in the 1990s. And she said, you know, the, the common thread of all the companies that we went after, you know, you go inside these companies and people all say the same thing. Like if you disagree with the boss, you're going to get fired. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, that's a pretty powerful insight as well, I think. That's great. I, um, I really appreciate, you know, that commentary, Adam, um, and the, the connection to, to 
Kevin's commentary as well, you know, linking the, the behaviors, the structures, and, and really the mindset that's necessary um, for listening to informed leadership. And over to you to continue this conversation. I'd like to just go to the other side and talk about the importance of talk and walking the walk and talking the talk, so culture. And so, uh, Adam, this time I might start to you. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of culture and how, as you say, how do we make culture real? Sure. And I, I will say that, you know, the business world is full of words that I've come to appreciate our Rorschach tests, right? Like I think strategy is one of them. Classic ink blot, everybody's kind of got a different take on it. And I think the culture is another one of those words. It's amorphous, it's a mess, it's messy. Um, sometimes you run people, you meet people who run VC funds and they say, look, I don't even want to talk about culture, right? Like you can't put it on a spreadsheet. So I just don't want to talk about it. But I think we've all come to appreciate just how important it is. Um, and then, so, you know, what separates the companies that do it well? Because, you know, most companies go through the exercise, the values exercise, right? Um, they come up with a five or 10 things and they get the laminated wallet cards and put the posters in the conference room. But if you ask people, what are the values? Most people can't remember them. Um, and then you also see that that gap that you alluded to between the walk and the talk. And I, and I think I think it's important to point out that that is uh, very dangerous to have that gap. In some ways, you know, if you're not gonna live your values, it's almost better to not go through the exercise in the first place because what I've come to appreciate is that if people do see daylight between the stated values and how people get ahead in the behaviors, that that makes people cynical. Um, they start thinking there's double standards and that cynicism can become like this cancer that spreads throughout the company. It's like, oh, this is one of those companies. Um, so now let's hit the reset and say, well, you know, how does this, when it works, what does that look like? Um, and I think Kevin and I start with the idea that there's no right list of values. There's no right number of values, um, but you have to be incredibly intentional. There's that word again about making them real and all the expected kind of norms and behaviors that, uh, that underlie those when you double click on them. Um, I think the most powerful leaders have stories behind them, not only those values in action and how they're part of the company's history and behind its successes, but that they also tie it to their own personal narratives and, and why they care about those things. Um, and then from then point on, from that point on, it's just making sure that they are that they are reinforced at every kind of touch point in the employee experience. They're part of the criteria for hiring, onboarding, why people get fired. There's quarterly and annual uh, awards. People tell stories about them. Um, they're part of the performance review process. People are promoted because they embody those values. Um, and just that sort of constant reinforcement that make people think, okay, that's how we roll here. Um, because if you don't have that, I, I sometimes think of the whole values question. It's almost like if you can imagine a, a sport with no rules and there's no refs on the field, right? Um, that's what a, a, a company with a bad culture looks like because then the dirty players are going to start getting ahead. Um, so you have to say, these are the rules. You got to have refs on the field to call it out. And then people can start focusing on the work instead of watching their back. So good, Adam, thank you. Kevin, just a, maybe a quick follow-up for, for you. Another perennial leadership 
comment that culture eats strategy for lunch. You know, what do you think? Um, I, I know that's a popular phrase. I, I taught strategy at, at, at Harvard Business School and that the students would often ask that question. I'm not sure that's, that's, it's that simple. I think if, if executing the strategy <clears throat> requires a culture that doesn't exist, like let's say teamwork is part of the culture and executing the strategy takes teamwork. And what we in fact have is a bunch of stove pipes. In that case, culture is going to eat strategy for lunch. Uh, so I, I think they have to be mutually supportive and I have, I think they have to be aligned. So culture sure does affect strategy. Uh, but the main thing that I would try to make a point, Adam did a great job is the culture is what the top team does behaviorally and what they enforce and model. And the CEO needs to know what the culture on the ground really is based on the views of the employees, not because of anecdotes or not because of happy talk. So actually collecting valid social data will tell the CEO what is the reality of the culture the staff is actually experiencing. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Jeff, back to you. Sure. Well, I'll remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm here with Mike Useem and Ann Greenhall. And our guests today are the co-authors of a new book, The CEO Test, Master the Challenges that Make or Break All Leaders, uh, Adam Bryant and Kevin Scherer. Mike, over to you. So, Adam, I'm going to start with you on uh, number six, test number six. Here it is. Can you handle a crisis? And if you're coming up short on this one, this is definitely not your year. Uh, you, you and Kevin begin the book with a great phrase. I wrote it down here for my own future self-reference. In a crisis, you got to show up and be human. So help us understand why that's vital. Sure. And I, I think an important sort of step back point is to frame the idea of crisis and point out that there's kind there's two kinds of crisis. We're living th through one right now with the pandemic. Um, and I think similar like the financial crisis of 2008, the sense in, the, in these kinds of crises that, you know, everybody's in it together. It's like this, you know, tsunami that has rolled around the world and, and we're all in it together. The second kind of crisis, which is something that happens sort of in your division, team, company, but it's unique to you. And I think we really need to sort of separate those out um, because the playbooks are slightly different for how to navigate. Um, in terms of the crisis we've been living through, I mean, you know, it's a good question. It's like, what have we learned about leadership? How has leadership evolved over the past year? And I think this idea of people have to show up and be more human, especially since we're all working in, and living remotely and trying to connect with people on these Brady Bunch squares and, and just sort of acknowledging, um, you know, the stresses that we're all under. I mean, I, I think a lot of people have really stepped up to that, that the barrier between the personal and professional is down now. Um, and not everybody's comfortable in doing that, but I think the leaders who really excel have, have done that. Um, so I, I, I think that's one of the, the, the ways leadership has changed in the past year. Um, but I, look, we're, every leader, if they are around long enough, they're probably going to have a crisis on their watch, right? And uh, so we really try to provide a, a pretty clear playbook 
um, uh, in the book about how to navigate those things. And if I had to pull out one rule, um, it's just the, the the trap that so many leaders fall into, which is they they say things that they don't know. They engage in wishful thinking and say, oh, it's not as bad as it looks right now, or this is as bad as it's going to get. Um, and it is those mistakes, uh, those simple mistakes that you just can't get back because the trust is gone, the credibility is damaged. Um, and it's easy to sort of look at that and say, well, isn't that obvious? But you know, when you're in a crisis, it's like being in a small sailboat in a hurricane out on the water, right? Sometimes it's uh, hard to remember those simple rules, especially because it's human nature. You say like, this can't be happening. You know, I've, I've got all these hardworking employees, we care. You know, this can't be happening, but it is happening. And you have to have a very sort of cold eye assessment of reality. Um, don't say what you don't know. You know, make a commitment to get the facts um, and show all your key stake stakeholders that once you find out what the problem is, that it's going to be fixed so it doesn't happen again. Those are just the few rules. Um, but again, it's, it, it is unfortunate, but if, if you are around long enough, you're going to face a crisis. And that's why we said it's one of the yeah. seven key yeah. tests. Adam, really, really helpful. And I'm imagining our listeners are copying some of those ideas down because they are living that issue at the moment. We're all in a crisis and showing up for starters. And to paraphrase one thing that you emphasize, you've got to be direct, frank, realistic, you also have to stay optimistic. You got to be ready to to sustain the momentum and get out of the crisis. Which Kevin brings me to you. Then my guess is you went through a couple crises of your own in your years at Amgen, and picking up on what Adam just said, can you just walk us through one of those moments, and how in particular you, to borrow the phrase, you showed up and you were human. Yeah, I'd, I'd like Mike to be able to report a great triumph here, but maybe I'm going to report more a great learning experience that I miraculously survived. And, right. and, and it's a little bit a little bit complicated, but let me let me take it. We had a drug that had been on the market for a long time. It was a wonderful drug. I thought it was perfectly safe. And it turns out we started to get some data that that people who didn't work for us had run some experiments, having that drug at a much higher dose than would be normal, finding out there were some serious side effects, cardiac side effects. Hmm. So, so first of all, it wasn't clear we were in a crisis when the data happened. It wasn't like two airplanes just fell out of the sky or, or a, you know, a pipe on a big, uh, big undersea oil well broke. It, it was subtle. And I didn't realize we were really in a crisis. And I stayed in denial for a long time until the FDA finally said, we're going to limit the use of this drug. Your company hasn't been totally straightforward. And at that point, I knew we were in a real crisis. And I could have, I could have known it maybe a little bit earlier, maybe not. Then I made another mistake is I delegated the crisis response to my two principal deputies who for the prior seven years we've been working together had been perfect. They were great. The head of R&D, the head of commercial, there's nothing these guys couldn't do. And then I kind of went about running the rest of the company. Then I found out, hey, wait a minute, I wasn't engaged enough. These two guys couldn't actually solve the crisis without my involvement. So then finally, I got involved, changed the cadence of the meetings, 
sort of publicly said, yeah, Amgen, we could have handled this better, et cetera, et cetera. And we got out of it. And, and the, the sort of final thing was a, a prior board member who's a good friend of mine wrote me a note and said, hey, it looks like you survived the crisis. I didn't think you were going to. And so I, I survived, but I, I almost learned what not to do at each stage until I finally found out what to do. And, and, and that was, that's the kind of crisis CEOs tend to get. They're not so obvious all the time. Even, even Boeing, when two airplanes fall out of the sky, when you, it, it took a while to really figure out what's mm. going on. And so um, it's tough. There, there, it's not a surprise that most CEOs don't survive the crisis they find themselves in. It's not a surprise. Kevin, that's great. A quick add-on before I turn the baton back over to Jeff. In your consulting work with other chief executives, you're trying to make that point with them. What have you found really helps deliver that point? For example, your own personal account, more general um, thoughts and, and guidance pointing at others. How, how do you deliver that message? First, establish a, a good, trusting personal relationship. And in, and in my work, the CEOs know that I've done the job. And that, that gives me a bit, bit leg up and credibility. As you might guess already, I'm a fairly direct communicator and I don't pull my punches and, and I make no, uh, th there's no doubt that they're gonna hear what I think. Now they're gonna, they're gonna believe me or not, but more often than not, uh, they, they do believe and, and, and try to react. It doesn't always work because sometimes uh, you know, the tsunami hits and nobody's going to stand up to the tsunami. Nobody. Uh, but but I, I don't mm. tend to have much problem getting people's attention and, and focus. That's great. Good. Jeff. Well, I, I, I want to turn to maybe a little bit of a, a different line of uh, questions and, and to refer to something that you both referred to as, as we were talking about the genesis for the book here. You know, we have been talking very much um, from the frame of the corner office and the CEO. And, and I, I really appreciated the way in which you highlighted uh, the fact that, that leaders at all levels of organizations face their own version of these kinds of tests. So Adam, maybe to, to start with you, for, for our listeners who are aspiring to executive roles and aspiring to these, uh, these, these CEO roles, how would you suggest that they use these tests to build skills over time? Sure, and, and I think it starts with um, trying to ask yourself, like, what is really important? I mean. Kevin and I don't want to pretend like we've cracked some secret code, right? Like this is the pattern recognition mm -hmm. exercise based on our, our experiences. I mean, two people may come up with a different seven. But I, I think when you're, especially in your early years as a leader, leadership is really hard, right? And you're doing it in front of your employees, trying to figure it out. I sometimes think it's like... You know, trying to ride a unicycle on a stage in front of people, right? You're going <laughs> to stumble and fall and make a lot of mistakes and uh, and do do it while you're you're trying to figure out how to do it. But I think there's a core question, which is if I'm going to invest time to become better at some aspect of leadership, where am I going to get the biggest return on investment? Right? Because leadership is about everything and anything, right? I mean, 
all of us on this on this show know this uh, to be true, which is that a, if you start a sentence with leadership is about dot, 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 you can put anything at the end of that sentence, right? And that can lead to the trap that a lot of people fall into, you know, which we all know from golf, which is paralysis by analysis. If you try and keep 50 things in your head when you're swinging that golf club, it's just going to be a mess. So really just asking yourself, like, what do I what should I work on that's going to have the biggest impact? And in many ways, that's what we have tried to answer um, with this book. And, and the first chapter is the first for a reason that this idea of strategy is such a cornerstone um, if you're going to have a successful team of five people or run a big company with 500,000. Um, just that, you know, it is a leader's responsibility to be able to stand up in front of their teams and just answer those simple questions that kids ask in the back seat, which is like, where are we going? How are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? Um, and, uh, you know, as, as Kevin and I know, and as all three of you know, it's the simplest questions in leadership are the hardest, right? What's your strategy? What is the purpose of the team? What does culture mean? Um, all of these are huge challenges. So just trying to create a focal point and say, if you invest time on getting better at these things, you will learn faster, you'll be more effective faster, and you'll set yourself apart. Jeff, let me, let me take a little crack at that because um, I think it's such a central question. Uh, I would say, first of all, do the job you're in to the absolute best of your ability, period, and be, be very aware of where you stand against the criteria for success in your current job. And it's hard to get good feedback in most organizations. It's incomplete or it's shaded to the positive, or it's not actionable. So thinking about where are you below threshold on certain skills that are required for success in your current job, that, that's a place to focus right away and you know, go from there. Kevin, let me, let me follow up because the, the, you know, the, one of the threads that's come through in this conversation um, really has, aside from your direct communication style, which, which I will agree with, um, is the intentionality with which you're approaching leadership and I'm curious, both in the context of this book, as well as the uh, role of the CEO course that you were uh, teaching at Harvard, what isn't visible to those around you? You know, you, you talk in the book a little bit about the inner game of leadership, but what's not visible to others that a leader really needs to be able to, to manage internally? That's, that's a good question. I, I think what a leader has to have is a kind of um, energy and balance. You've, you've got to have the, the energy to listen, the energy to take the hits, the energy to, to keep, keep going when it's hard, the energy to create optimism. And so the, the, the duck who's on top of the water but paddling like mad, that, that's not visible. And the other one that's not visible is related is what I call resilience. This is not a job where everybody's applauding you every day. In fact, what it feels like when you're in the job is the world is full of nothing but critics. Everybody knows the things you're doing wrong. Everybody knows how you can do it better. They may be right. You're just human. 
but you've got to be resilient and you, you, you can't shut down listening. And, and a lot of the stuff you hear about yourself is not positive. So um, resilience and, 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 and kind of stamina, I guess, is the two non-visible things that are central. There are others, but, but you got to have those two for sure. All right. Hey, um, thank you for that. I appreciate that insight. And, you know, Mike and Ann, we're, we're rapidly approaching the end of our time together. Um, this conversation has flown by. So I'm going to take us into a, a very brief after action review and, and ask each of you to, to highlight one of the, um, one of the insights, one of the lessons that, that you really want to carry with you out of today's conversation. Uh, Mike, can I start with you? Yeah, I'm happy to do it. And to get it going, uh, the CEO test for me is really a set of tests. And the outcome of those tests, if you pass all seven questions on the test, is that you are what we want to be, which is the complete leader. Got to have a strategy. We have to be personal. We have to communicate. have to get through a crisis. And for me, the book is just a wonderful call uh, whether you're going to be a CEO, and Adam referred to this earlier on, or a leader in some other role, CEO is a metaphor here for leadership, um, you, you need to think comprehensively about what you're doing and how you're going to do it. There's no single test. There are at least seven. Jeff. Great. Anne, how about you? All right. I'll build on that. Uh, yes, it's a test, but I was really heartened by Adam's comment that it doesn't mean we have to get a perfect score on each one of them. <laughs> we can we can excel in some and at least pass others. And then Kevin gave me even more hope because we can learn and we can learn and improve and grow. Um, thank you, Adam. Thank you, Kevin, for your time with us today. Um, Adam, how do uh, how do our listeners learn more about the book? Uh, if you Google the CEO test and Adam Bryant and Kevin share, you'll get all uh, all sorts of ways to buy it. So, and and thank you for the invitation to come on your show. It's uh, always enjoy our conversations. Great, thank, thank you, you very much, Jeff. I I really enjoyed it. And uh, Mike and Ann, thanks a lot. Good good conversation. Thank, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Adam. And to our listeners, thank you all so much for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show please send us an email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Be sure to follow our show on Twitter at SXM Business. Uh, once again, a special thank you to our guests, Adam Bryant and Kevin Scherer. I'd also like to send a big old thank you to our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Jeff Klein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.